Warning, please be aware that content in this podcast does discuss the murder of a child and also child sexual abuse, and in part, it's quite distressing. Welcome back to episode three. I'm Mark Williams-Thomas, and this podcast is the cold case reinvestigation into the disappearance of 15-year-old Lee Boxall. 32 years on, his parents are desperate for answers. So let's quickly recap some key information. Convicted child sex offender William Lambert, known as Bill, ran an unofficial youth club at St Dunstan's Church called The Shed and claims to have seen and had a long conversation with Lee in 1989, a year after he disappeared. Lambert also claims to have seen him again when he was with Rob Smith when they both saw him near to a railway station. This time, Lee was now calling himself Les and working for Social Security. After a lot of hard work, I've managed to track down Rob Smith. He has never spoken publicly before about his arrest on suspicion of murdering Lee Boxall, nor his connection to Lambert. I am investigating the disappearance of Lee Boxall, and your name has come up as a prime suspect in relation to his disappearance and murder. What can you tell me about that? Well, I can tell you I know nothing about his murder or his disappearance. It wasn't until I was arrested five and a half years ago I was totally shocked that he was being accused, I was being accused, and, then, and the third party was being accused. And Why were you surprised that he was being accused? Because I didn't know any of this was going on. I was under the impression that this gentleman, Lee, was, well, just dis- I didn't even know he was disappeared as such until later on when I, I met up at the churchyard with my uncle, Mr Lambert, and it was identified to me as, oh, you know, remember Lee, when you came down and a few weeks later, unfortunately, my name passed. And I was at the, um, let's get this right, in the churchyard itself, and there were three lads mucking around, talking about football, playing, horsing around and everything. And one of them I was able to identify from a photograph from the police that that was Lee Boxall. As far as I'm concerned, that was Lee Boxall. When I met this other chappy later on, um, it's slightly different. Very, very similar in looks and everything, but shorter hair, wearing a blazer, which was a leather blazer. Um, identified himself, uh, not as such. He said, my name now is Les, Leslie Hall. I've changed my name. And there was other things to do with, um, he didn't want people to know about him. He was just coming back for visiting the haunts. So he goes missing in 1988. Yep. When do you see him? What year do you see I'd him? I'd say it was around about 95. It was more than likely 95 when I see him. And then that's when I also, uh, after that, I actually saw him down at Rains Park Station. He waved and said, how's everyone? How's Bill and everyone? He's going to see, he's going to pop up and say hello. And I thought, I know you from somewhere, mate. Yeah, that's right. I've seen you down the churchyard. Yeah, no worries. And, And that was when I knew him as Les. Remember, the date previously given to Mike Platt was 1993, when it is claimed Smith saw Lee and this is also the date I've found in the police files. Right. So you're saying it wasn't 93? No, I, I believe it to be more 95. And then when I was interviewed by Mrs. Persons, I said, yeah, it's about three years. And they took it as three, three years after he disappeared, not three years after. 1988, he goes missing. 1995. It's more the time see I see him at him church. And apparently he's got a girlfriend as well. Right. I believe she was pregnant. And he, he said he, he'd been doing, uh, he'd been working uh, for bits of people, other people, and he was now working for the, I believe the DHSS. But I, this is what was given to me. I don't know how true it is, or what. From people I have spoken to, it has come up many times that Lambert talk about disposing of bodies in the cemetery grounds. Did he ever talk about anyone being buried in the grounds of the church? Uh, he used to make a joke about people coming to the funeral, coming up to a funeral, and oh. One of them's never going to come back. Well, it was his so a sick joker saying, well, they've buried one, and that's why he ain't coming back. That's the only way I know about it. And he did turn around and say, in a place like this, you could lose a body no one would know. Lambert is Smith's uncle. So does he think that Lambert is involved in Lee's disappearance? I feel 50-50 on that now. Before, I would have said, no, totally not. Now, I feel 50-50. It could have been. It could, he might not have been. It might be. He is innocent, and it might be... Lee Boxwell is still alive, but under a different name. I don't know. But all I know is other things I know, I found out about Bill, 
I don't want to talk to the band no more. I don't want to know nothing about him anymore. What have you found out about him? Well, when he was arrested, charged, and went to prison for indecency with a young girl. That made me feel sick. That made me feel really, really sick. I didn't know he was capable of that. And what do you feel about Bill now? You haven't had I, any contact with him? No, me? I've not had contact with him since his court case and he was sent to prison. I'd had enough. I don't want nothing to do with the man. I want nothing. I don't want to see the man. I don't want to talk to the man. I want nothing to do with him. Because it's put me in a situation now that I'm having, I've been more or less through a nervous breakdown. So, is Smith telling me the truth? I can with confidence say that Lee was not alive after the 10th of September 1988. And I can say with certainty that he was not working for the Department of Social Security, which is a government body where a background check would have been required and that he would certainly not be calling his wife, having apparently got married, her indoors. So what are the options here? Smith is straightforward lying, and together with Lambert, they have made these accounts up as a cover. That Lambert told Smith it was Lee to cover up his own actions and the murder of Lee, and Smith has therefore assumed it was Lee because he was told it was, not because he knew Lee. Or Smith has just got Lambert to lie for him. Rob Smith strongly denies any involvement in Lee's disappearance, has never been charged in relation to the matter. An important factor here is that they both knew Lee was missing. Remember, his missing appeal photo was up in the shed, yet neither thought for one minute to tell the police or contact missing people. Smith maintains his account that he saw Lee after his disappearance on three separate occasions. Another person that was told by Lambert that he had seen and spoken to Lee was Trudy Crawley. She is now the partner of Rob Smith. She was also arrested in connection with Lee's disappearance. Like Smith, she has never spoken before. Trudy, thank you for talking to me. I've obviously just spoken to your partner in relation to he was accused, arrested in relation to the murder yes. of Lee Boxer. You were interviewed? I was arrested. You were arrested? Yes. Taken to Charing Cross. Um, put in cells. For me, well, put it like this, if it wasn't on camera, I'd be telling you all sorts of words that no normal lady <laughs> should use, to be honest with you. But I mean, if I, well, put it like this, if I ever see him again, I'll kill him. See who? Bill Lambert. If I see him again, I'll kill him because he's ruined my life. I think it was on the arrest sheet for me, I believe it was um, perversion of the course of justice. So when you were interviewed by the police, what did they ask? They asked me um, along the lines of, um, had I seen Lee? Had I had any contact with him? How long I'd been going down the churchyard for? How often I went down there? Um, who other people had been down there? And they just asked me general questions about down the churchyard, what my involvement was, did I know anything? And I said, well, all I know is what I was told. Yeah, that Lee Boxall was still alive, but he changed his name to Leslie Hall, and I think he worked for the DVLA at Wimbledon. That was it. Who told you that? That was, Bill had told me that, but Rob was in the room at the time, so it was all, you know, it was last when that came about when we had the first Crime Stoppers, not the second Crime Stoppers, which was in April 2014, but the one they'd had a couple of years before, because it had been on so prior TV. To prior to 2014. Prior to 2014, there was a Crime Stoppers um, thing about Lee's case. Right. And we would, you know, we knew he'd been down the church. We knew he was a local lad. And... Um, I said to, you know, I said to Bill, I said, look, you know, what's all, you know, what's, because I didn't know anything about it. I knew about Lee going missing because he was like a, like a regular star, you know, local you lad know gone missing. Him? I didn't put two and two together that there'd be a maintenance shed there with tools and equipment and all the rest of it. And I just, I just stayed down there, you know, I popped down whenever I could after work and so on and so forth. And then after this Crime Stoppers thing prior 2014, we just got onto the subject of it. He said, oh yeah, he said he's still alive. He's just changed his name. 
And I was like, well, why hasn't he gone back to see his parents? Because by this time it was nationwide. It wasn't just local. It was a nationwide thing at the time. And I said to him, I said, look, you know, why, why haven't, you know, why haven't you said anything to the police? So when did she last have contact with Lambert? I'll tell you when the last time I saw him. I was at Charing Cross Police Station and I heard him coming out of the cell next to me. So I had a look through the little peephole and I saw him walking down with the detectives going for an interview. It's the last I saw him, I think it was the back. That he was didn't, the same he didn't day even you know. Arrested. Yeah, he didn't even know I was there, I don't think. Because he hadn't even been interviewed yet. He was on his way down for an interview. In order for the police to arrest someone, they have to have reasonable suspicion. Like Lambert and Smith, Trudy also knew that Lee was missing, yet she also never told the police or the missing charity about his sightings. Are you telling me you have nothing to do with the disappearance and have no knowledge? No knowledge what's, whatsoever. Whatsoever. I just wish I'd actually said something back close to the time when all this was going ahead now. And that's something I've got to live with. That's, that's the guilt I've got to carry. Knowing that that little bit of information may have helped. And I, always, I will always regret that. That's one thing I will always regret. Trudy strongly denies any involvement in Lee's disappearance and she has not been charged. In addition to the arrest of Rob Smith and Trudy Crawley, there were two other people arrested in connection with Lee's murder. The fourth person is Bill Lambert, who I've mentioned quite a lot, who I will deal with shortly. But the third person who I was hoping I would be able to name at this stage, but at the moment I can't for legal reasons. I have tried every possible way to make contact with him. I've written and called his home and mobile, and whilst I have talked to a member of his family, he just won't speak to me. So I'm going to tell you everything I know about him, but not name him or identify him. Let's call him Suspect 3. So Lee goes missing the 10th of September 1988. In 1990, Suspect 3 told a witness that he knew where Lee was buried and it was in the churchyard in Cheam. The same month he made a comment that he and some other youths had done over a boy and buried him in a tomb at St Dunstan's Church. The police were told of what he was saying to people and he was arrested and interviewed on suspicion of the murder of Lee Boxall. During the interview he admitted making the comments but claimed they were empty boasts. Incredibly, the interviewing officers never asked him if he knew Lee Boxall, nor what links he had to St Dunstan's Church or Lambert. My information comes direct from the police files, and I think it's entirely fair to say that the quality of this interview was totally inadequate and incompetent. Suspect 3 also gave character evidence in support of Lambert at his abuse trial for child sexual assaults in 1994. More information then comes in about Suspect 3 in 1998, when a call was made to Crime Stoppers in which Suspect 3 is named as having something to do with Lee's disappearance. Then, in 2003, when police reviewed the case, Suspect 3 was made a significant witness, leading to him being formally interviewed in 2004. In this interview, he admitted that he was a frequent visitor to the shed at St Dunstan's Church and a close associate of Bill Lambert. Contrary to what Smith, Lambert and Crawley have said, he said Lee did not attend the shed. Then in 2014, he was arrested at the same time as Lambert, Smith and Crawley as part of the new police investigation. He continued to maintain no involvement. In the police file there is a letter from Suspect 3 to Lambert and it reads as follows. I will let you make up your mind if you think it's relevant, however what is clear is that Suspect 3 considered Lambert close. Dear Bill, have had to go, but been a pleasure to see you again. I will make sure I will see you sooner rather than later, as I'm sure there is plenty to talk about. You have always been a good friend to me, and I cannot forget that. If for any reason you need to reach me, my number is... Speak to you soon. Suspect 3 has never spoken publicly. 
I've been passed a request that he made to Metropolitan Police for more information. It reads as follows. I was arrested on the 7th of April 2014 on false allegations of murder and perverting the course of justice and false sex claims of anyone under 16 years of age. It relates to the disappearance of Lee Boxall, which has made national news and been on Crime Watch. I was taken to West End Central Police Station. I was kept for 24 hours and with Home Office approval kept for a further 12 hours. I had no solicitor at the time and I knew that I did not need one. I answered all questions made to me, not once answering no comment. I kept being rebailed and eventually saw a solicitor after 23 months. I was fed up of being continually deferred. I made a complaint to the investigating officer in 2015 that my name and place of work had already been released to the Boxall family years previously, even though I was never charged for this. In this letter, he asked for a copy of a specific witness statement and his police interview in order to take civil action. The police refused his request to release either. Suspect 3 has never been charged in connection with Lee's disappearance. Very recently, Peter, the father of Lee Boxall, was contacted out of the blue by someone very significant giving what could be vital new information. I have now made contact with this person and they've sent me a very detailed email. The email reads as follows. I don't know exactly what you know, so I'm going to include everything that may help you solve this case. First of all, William David Lambert is not my father's real name. He was taunted as a child because he was obese and everyone called him Billy Bunter after the comic character. As an adult, he was commonly known as Bill. His real name is Patrick James Lambert. Named after his father, James Patrick Lambert, he married in 1957. I am the third child of that marriage. My mother turned 16 on February 26, 1957. They were married on March the 1st, 1957. You will now have worked out. This is a letter from the suspect Bill Lambert's daughter, Karen. It goes into more detail, but I've arranged to see Karen and hear from her firsthand exactly what information she has. So I'm about to set off to see Karen. She's never spoken publicly before. This is a big moment for my investigation. I've had a brief chat with her about what she's got to say, but I wanted to get the full details from her on record, filmed and audio for the first time. Okay, so Karen, tell me who your dad is? My father is William David Lambert. He changed his name sometime in the 70s to William David. He actually got my mother pregnant when she was 15, three days after her 16th birthday, and he married her. She was 16 and three days. Karen told me a lot about her childhood and that her father was not a part of her life, having divorced her mum very early on. How does it feel to be the daughter of Bill Lambert, who's accused of the murder of Lee Boxer? If I could drain my blood and replace it with fresh, that didn't have his DNA in a heartbeat, if I could purge him from my DNA, I would. I am utterly ashamed, utterly ashamed. And all that does is really, it drives me on to be a better person. Because I couldn't be worse than him, could I? But I can be a lot, lot better. I won't tell a lie. I won't lie for anybody. To the point I've suffered myself because I've told the truth when maybe I should have been a little bit more circumspect. What do you think your father's reaction will be of you telling us this? He will go stock staring mad and threaten to kill me. If he can get his hands on me, I probably would be the next one. And if he finds me and he threatens me, if he knocks me down, he's going to need an army because if I get up again, I ain't scared of him. He's 85. He's pathetic, you know, and now, now his chickens are coming home to roost. I hope to God, if this is true and it can be proved, I hope he rots in prison. So why is Karen telling me this now and what has she told the police? I had one officer phone me back from the Met and he said that somebody would be coming to speak to me. A police officer, a detective inspector and a female officer 
came to speak to me. They didn't take any notes. They just chatted and then they went. And I haven't when heard anything. That? that was in 2012. I've heard nothing from anybody. It's almost as though they're tired of it. They've spent enough on this one now. So let's move on to the other one. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, I don't know. And you've been back in contact with the police again more recently and they are now coming to see you? No, I got in touch with Peter Boxall. I found him on Facebook and I sent a message to Peter Boxall. Peter, I have something I need to tell you. Peter then emailed me and he said, what is it you have to tell me? And I told him, I'm very sorry to have to say this, but this is what I know. And I told him. He then got in touch with the police and the police got in touch with me. But they're waiting for lockdown to be over. So what Karen tells me involves her brother, Gary, but she does not want to go into detail and wants Gary to tell me what he knows. Um, you need to speak to Gary and I can give you his contact details. He's happy to speak to you. It's painful for him to know something like this and to be carrying it for so long. But Gary and me both need to get this to the right people to get it dealt with. But I've deliberately not um, reminded him because I want him to tell you what he knows. On the way back from seeing Karen, I called Gary and he's agreed to meet. He is very nervous. Is his info enough to finally break open this investigation and give some answers as to what happened to Lee? I really do hope so. Lee's family desperately need answers and some closure. This could be a massive turning point in my investigation. Information that has never been released publicly before. And if true, it does all fit. Because we know that the prime suspect is Bill Lambert. And now his own son is about to tell me what he thinks his dad did with Lee's body. Gary, thank you so much for speaking to me. I have an older brother, a younger brother and a sister, all by Bill, my father, and then to my knowledge he has four more sons that are all younger than us. One of my half-brothers turned up all of a sudden about nine years ago. Tell me about that. Steve is the elder one of the four and he was in the area and he tracked us down, me and my sister, so he come to my workshop here and basically tried to start a relationship, I suppose, with his older brother and older sister. He worked at the time renovating public houses and if he was in the area, he'd pop in. So nine years ago, turns up out of the blue, Steve comes yep. and speaks to you. What do you talk about? Well, at first it was just general things and then he started filling us in a bit about my father and so on. So I listened, you know, he wasn't telling me anything in particular just general things about his brothers. And then he got on to other things. And then one day he made a bit of a statement that's caused a bit of um, concern over the years, but not been aware of what I could do. So tell me about that. Well, in general, he was talking about helping out my father, who was at the time, I believe, a graveyard attendant. And apparently he had called him in to help out because he had a wasp or a pest infestation somewhere. I believe it was down either a side of a grave or one of the tombs. And what Steve had to do was pour anything flammable down there. He put down bitumen, he put down anything that he had in the gardener's workshed that would burn and kept the fire going all day. And that just seemed strange thing. And he, he implied it was part of something else, but nothing more than that. And we weren't sure, I weren't sure, and I've discussed it with my sister. So he tells you that his father was burning something? Inside the graveyard, right? but down the side of a grave or a tomb, and he was taking stuff from the shed and pouring it down to keep the fire burning to destroy the wasp stroke nest, you know? And it just didn't, but then he, he sort of, then put a bit of a you know face on as and sort of, but of course I wasn't sure it was a. He said I never saw anything, but I had to keep feeding the fire all day, and he then left it sort of hanging in as if there was more to it. He's telling you 
that his father has got him to watch an area by a grave yep. which is is on fire, yep. is being stoked by your yes. father, and he needs to keep an eye on it. And keep it stoked, keep it burning. So he was getting anything that was in the, the, the graveyard shed. He had chemicals in there for cleaning the war grave stones. Right. And, that sort of thing. and he was pouring that down there just to keep the fire burning constantly. I imagine for high heat, which is a bit excessive for a wasp stroke, an ant's nest or anything. And what did you think Steve was telling you? Were you reading more? Or did he say anything more about that? Well, he, he just implied there was more to it. I, I believe there was more to it. So the original information came from Steve Lambert. I have called him and he has agreed to meet. I now need to find out why he believes this fire connects to Lee's disappearance. I wanted to start by understanding more about Steve's dad. I need to give a warning here. Steve discusses how he was abused as a child. It is distressing and upsetting. What was childhood like living at home? It was hell. It was hell. It was when he was around, it was hell all the time. I don't remember one time when he showed any kind of love, any care or anything like that for us when we was younger, and that's me and my brothers. He's a very violent, he, can, he blows hot and cold. One minute he could be as happy as hell, and you could be joking, laughing, playing around with him, and then all of a sudden, something would happen, somebody would say something, and the nearest person to him would get it. They'll get hit, they'll get shouted at, abused, uh, pushed around, told you're useless, basically just put you down, run you right down. And did he ever display any violence to you? Yes, many times. Many times. Tell me. The, the most memories that I have of him is the violence that he used towards me and my mother and also my brothers. Tell me about some of those occasions. Uh, well, he used to get the ump with my mum and he used to shout and scream and, and everything was sexual. He used to put her down about how she was in bed and in front of us and we were sitting there like his little audience and he'd be putting her down and then he'd start on her mum and dad, my nan and granddad. If his tea wasn't tasting right, he'd have a go at my mum. Or if one of us was close, he'd have a go at us for something. It just everything and anything, any excuse that he could find, he would tear into anybody that was close to him. It was clear that as Steve was telling me about his childhood, he was becoming upset. I asked if he wanted to take some time, but he wanted to keep talking. One time I found a pack of... Uh, pornographic uh, playing cards. I believe I was about seven, eight years old. It was a, a, a novelty thing to a child at age. I took them outside and I started showing to other kids in the flats where we used to live. He got wind of it, he come down, he grabbed me, took me indoors. He was so embarrassed, so wound up and frustrated that at one point he grabbed me by my arm and leg and he threw me off the wall. And I bounced down onto the settee, then onto the floor and the only reason he didn't, because he started to come approach me to finish me off, basically. My mother dived across me and put her hands across me to stop him. And she said, Bill, leave him alone, you're going to kill him. That was one time. Another time, we used to run off when we upset him. We used to play toys on the stairs and on the uh, landing. If we made too much noise, he used to come running up the stairs, trying to kick us, he'd stamp on our stuff. And he, as we was running away from him, he would try and hit us on the back. So it was a way of like winding us. So we couldn't, obviously couldn't go any further to get away from him. But it was literally anything and everything. If we broke a plate, if we broke a cup, if we slammed the door too hard, if we pressed the doorbell too long, anything, anything that could upset him. Uh, Christmas was the worst time. We used to sit there, heads down, waiting for him to open his present because he, we knew he'd start because it wasn't what he wanted. And on a few occasions, the Christmas tree was thrown out of the window with the full lights decorations, because he was so angry. So uh, it was a very volatile, violent childhood that you grew up yes, in? Yes, it was, yes. Steve then started to tell me about how his dad used to take him on burglaries. Uh, there was breakers yards. Uh, we used to go there because he needed a certain size headlight, which come from a mini, and we used to, me and my brother used to be a watch out for him when he'd go in there and, and strip bits off the cars. Also, when he started working down the churchyard, we all had push bikes, and there was me, a friend, and another brother, and my father went down to a timber yard down in the park, 
and we was, he was passing out the timber so we could put it on the handlebars and on the seat and wheel it all back for him because he was building his shed. Steve would often go down to the shed at St Dunstan's Church. He said kids that went there did so because his dad would let them smoke and drink freely. So, had he ever heard rumours associated with the place? Uh, there was rumours coming around that uh, there was having children were having sex down there, and and my mum would come up with some things and that, and then and then all of a sudden my mum would start losing jewellery, and and there'd be things stolen from the house, the flat, and 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 you, and it was all going down to him. And then he started staying down there longer hours. He started going down there at midday, say like one, two, three o'clock, and he'd be coming back at nine, ten, eleven o'clock. Some some nights after twelve, but it just it just started building up, and I I only got little bits of information here and there. My mum really, I mean, she didn't really talk about it. One of the people arrested on suspicion of Lee's murder was Rob Smith, so I wanted to know what Steve thought of him. Robert Smith is my cousin. I've known him all my life, basically, but he's never been a person that we really hang around with. I just never got on with him, to be honest with you. I spoke to him because he was part of family, and that was it, really. I did get into trouble with him when I was 16. And uh, what was that I, for? It, we stole a car, and we went out drinking. So what else did Lambert tell his son about the graveyard? Basically, there was graves there that were so old and dated, you couldn't read the names. He would smash them out and use them as paving slabs. Uh, there was also uh, big tombstone standing graves that you could actually take the lid off, move it over, and there's a big cubby hole inside. Obviously, there's nothing, no, no coffin in there. It's just empty space. Uh, he used to say to us, if we've got anything to hide, give him a shout and he'll show us one of the graves. We can just slide the top off. So he did have hidey holes. He did have certain graves that he knew of, certain graves he repaired, and sometimes he'd done a nice job, you know, repairing the graves. But he was always, it was always a, it was always a thing going on about if he could find somewhere secret, and you know, he, he's that kind of person. And uh, did he show you any of the graves down there? And what, what? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He actually showed me one of the big graves there, and he, he told me if I ever need to hide anything, he said anything big, you can put it in there, and he, he actually, you can actually move. I don't know if it, what it's like now, but you can actually move the top of the actual. It's a table tomb, a big tabletop on it. You can actually slide it off to one side. And also, there was a, one of them had an end panel that actually fell inwards, so you could pull it back up and it looked like it was all complete. But, you know, you could actually get into it, so you could actually crawl inside and hide. Steve wanted to tell me about an occasion when he caught his dad out. Me and my friend went down there looking for uh, other friends at this, like a meeting point. I turned up there and we walked into the shed and, and we caught my dad on the hop and he, he jumped around like, oh, 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 oh. Hold on, hold on, hold on, like because we just walked in, and what it was, we we could hear giggling in the back, and there was two young girls in there. And he had a porno film on for them, and my mate, he was he was a bit stumped. He didn't know what to say, but he you could see he's disgusted. We knew what was going on, and then he, I looked at him. I went, what, what, what? And you know, because I didn't know what to say, and he and he turned around and looked at me straight in the face, and he said, well, they've got to learn somehow. And how old do you think those girls were? I'll say they're about 15, 16, around that age. I now need to ask him about the new information he has. I've taken my time to get to this point because Steve was very anxious about talking to me and so I wanted him to take his time and feel more confident about opening up. Now there comes an occasion when you go down there and you see something really significant. Tell me about that day. In 1988, uh, I went down there one time and uh, he was having a fire down there. There was a, a, a... he called it a hornet's nest or a wasp nest. It was sort of dusk, turning dark, and I had nothing to do that evening. So I, as I turned up there, there was a few people standing around. If I can remember right, I believe Robert Smith was standing there. But what it was, there was this very large hole on the side of a grave, and it was full of sticks, and it was glowing like a furnace, really glowing. You could melt glass. It was that. It was raging underground, this fire. And basically he was pouring, it was either diesel or paraffin. But it, it wasn't the petrol because it didn't flare up, but it made that like a whooshing noise as you poured it into the hole and then it flared up after it caught. And I'd stayed there for quite a while, burning this hole, burning this wood, trying to get rid of this wasp nest or hornet nest, as he said. 
And how long was that fire going for? Well, for it to be raging like that, it could have been going for days. It could have been underground, under that, that gravestone, it could have been going for days. It was that intense, the flames, the heat, the glow, it was white glow in, in the hole. It was glowing that much. It was like looking into a furnace when you see like iron being melted and stuff like that. And you know, it, it was so bright as well in that hole. It was it was raging underground. But in all the time I was doing this, and I'll be honest, and I, I'm I keep thinking back to it. Not once did I see a, a dead wasp, a dead hornet, a dead bug. I didn't see anything. There was nothing there. There was just this hole. I'll say about three feet long, going down about three foot. But it was all wedged with burning wood and stuff like that, all stuffed in the hole, and it was just glowing. Do you think that could have been Lee? I don't know. I, he's capable of so much. You know, he's... he's. I believe he would be twisted like that. He, it, it wouldn't affect him. Sadly, in my line of work, I needed to ask Steve a question that I've asked lots of people over the years in different circumstances. Is your dad capable of killing? I think so, yes. I think so. A I child? Think so. I think so. I think so if he got caught out. He wouldn't see at Lee's age and Lee's size. I've never met Lee. I don't know Lee. I've just seen pictures of Lee. I believe if he got caught out and he thought there was a risk of somebody telling the police or anything like that, I, I think he punches hard enough. I reckon he could kill with one punch. I've seen him knock a lady out when I was 14 and I know if he was... If he thought he was at risk, he, he possibly he's capable of doing anything. He's got no care or thought for animals. He, he used to torture our cat. He used to put our cat in the spin dryer just for a laugh. And the cat used to get out, obviously, giddy, and be all laughing and giggling about it, think it's funny. When I was a child, he put my nan's budgie in a bag because it had a growth on its neck. And with all other children, my other cousins as well, it was all down my nan's house. He put it in two carrier bags. I can't remember it. I still see it today. He put this live budgie in the two carrier bags. He took it out into the back garden. He twisted a knot in the handles of the bag and then he swung it and smashed it off the wall. And you could see the bag, the bottom of the bag, filling with blood. And I remember that to this day. And he, he'd done that. No care, no nothing. You have nothing to do with your father now, do you? Oh, nothing at all. 93. I've seen him twice. Two, two of my relatives' funerals. He tried to talk to me the second time. I just blanked him. How do you feel about your dad now? Uh, I don't want people to think that I'm putting him down because I hate him. I don't want them to think this is me getting my own back on him and stuff like that. But I'm, in my mind, in my eyes, he's dead. All I can remember is the bad times. I can't remember any good times. It's always him hitting the drool coming out of his mouth when he was above you and punching you and the fag breath. He had a horrible stale roll-ups he used to smoke and a horrible smell breath over you when he was hitting you. You've never spoken before publicly. No. Why are you talking to me now? Because if, as a father and a grandfather, I, I can't, I can't. I, I, to lose a child, it, it's, it, it would destroy me. It, it would kill me inside. I'd be dead. But if he had anything to do with Lee, I I want I want him to t to say even even anything you know where, where his body was anything. I would just like him to own up to it to admit it. After the interview, I spent some time with Steve, checking he was okay and would have support. He was keen to do anything else to help and said that he would like to show me the area of the fire in the graveyard. <laughs> Steve, I brought you down to St Dunstan's Church. I want you to show me some of the areas where your father talked about burying things. And then in a minute, I'm going to ask you to show me where that fire was. So just talk sure. me through this area. This area here, this is a newly built shed. His shed was burnt down a few years ago and they've rebuilt it all. So this is not what was here that I remember. This is all new or this area, but it's basically the same layout where the building is. His shed used to be with his secret door, used to be down the back half of here. 
this was a secret entrance where if anybody was in any trouble or if you needed to get in the shed for any reason, you could sneak through the little secret door at the back. That The other side is where the entrance was, a little pathway leads to around the back. Let's walk down there, shall we? Sure. Yeah. Different path. Sorry. Right, this, this here, this is a tarmac path. This wasn't tarmac before. It was slightly lower. And it was basically just old paving slabs, old grey stones that he'd used with a bit of a bank where the grass is to the side of the grave, graves down there. But if you walk straight down, if you say this brick building here, this is where the main entrance was into the, the actual brick built shed. Then there was a window a bit further down. It didn't have this sloping roof on this. But if you go down past these big double doors, which is all new, I'd say roughly about where this door ends, that's where the entrance was into the actual yard where his shed was right at the back. Right. But obviously you can't see anything here now. But this path here behind you was one of the paths right here. Is one of the pathways we used to go down to where the brambles are. That's round about where the, uh, the grave was, where the fire was. Show me that. Yep, okay. This bush, this hedge wasn't here before. There was something smaller, but it, you could see through, basically. And remember, this is... a. Uh, 88, so it's had a good yeah. few years' growth around here. This is the area where the fire was. I've got the right spot here. It's about three foot long, about three foot deep. And this is where we was pouring tons and tons of fuel down on top of it. My father was standing just behind me here, watching. Robert Smith was a bit further back. There was somebody else here. I don't know who it was, but there was somebody else there watching. And I spent a good few hours here pouring fuel onto it, shoving branches, sticks. As you can see, there's branches everywhere. So any kind of rubble that will burn, any kind of rubbish, we threw it down there, wedged it in, poured in fuel. The fire was raging. There was no flames coming up, no big flames. It was just a very hot, very intense fire right down beside that grave. And it sort of went underneath this grave as well. A lot of the stuff around here has changed and overgrown. When the police done the investigation, they did find telltale signs of fire, but I understand they weren't allowed to dig into the graves or through the graves. They only could dig down between the graves. So that's why they only found telltale signs. But to my memory, it goes underneath, and it's about three foot long, three foot deep, and it, it should be full of charcoal in there. It should be tons of it in there because we put, put so much rubbish in there and burnt it. And the flame, it was so intense. It was near enough glowing white. There was a white glow. No, I didn't see any kind of wasp or hornet or anything. I didn't see any bodies. Usually you would see that. I've seen enough wasp nests being in the building game all my life. You usually find dead ones dotted around. All the ones that try to escape and stuff like that. Didn't see one, one, of, one of them. Nothing at all. No evidence or anything. Didn't see any honeycombs or anything at all. Steve then talked about tunnels that used to exist running down to non-such place that used to be used by the monks. However, these tunnels were blocked up well before 1988, the year Lee vanished. In July 2012, the police carried out extensive searching of the grounds of St Dunstan's Church. The search found nothing of any evidential value. The search lasted many months, and they had to seek special permission from the church authorities to carry out excavation work, although they were given very clear orders that they must not disturb any of the graves. They could only search between them. So if Lambert had opened a grave and put anything inside it, it would not have been found during the extensive police search. This one here, this is the one with the side panel which has been fixed. There was a way of getting this end panel out. Uh, okay. And this one was the one that moved. I think there was something to do with that one as well. So this top moved, did it? It did, yes. But I mean, side end used to you can actually see. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Because I remember that was at one time it was pushed in. Yeah. And it stayed like that for many years. And then all of a sudden he's fixed it. But he knew where it was. Yeah. That's the thing. He, he knew how to get into it. This one here, this was fall, totally falling apart, this one. There was access into this one as well, this big one. Oh. But, I mean, you can see it's had pat, yeah. patch repairs. 
It's probably one of these repairs because they never lasted. But, but it's these kind of graves. And anything, it'd it take two of you, three of you, just yeah. to push it over. But any, 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 any place where there was a cubby hole, any place that you think you could get into and hide something, you would. But you could quite easily hide a body. Yes. Or yes. You didn't want in that to be found. Yes. Yeah. Very easily. Very easily. And he he had the time. He, from the sound of it, he had the people around him to do it. He, you know, he he's, he's he had fires. He had basically he just got away with it. You could actually say he got away with murder. That's the truth of it. I've heard now from a number of people about an association that Lambert had with a local policeman. I want to ask Steve if he knew anything about this. So you don't know what we've found out? No. Just tell me about this policeman that he used to be friendly with. Uh, it's many, many years ago. It's in the 70s. There was a, like a, a, a pet copper, used to, as they called him, used to come up. He's, he was called Jock Kirk. That's the name that I remember him by. And he used to come up and ask favours. Sometimes he used to hide... But he did know my dad. He knew very well. They they spoke like mates. They were buddies when they spoke. And when they did talk, most of the time he was asked to leave, get out of the room because he's having a private chat. But he was he was around my dad quite a lot, to be honest with you. He at was, the shed here? No, no, at our flat. At your flat? He used to come to your house? Yes, he used to come to the house. He used to have cups of tea, have a fag, tobacco, whatever. And he used to come up like a mate, but he was on duty and he was a police officer. There was one time that uh, he, I don't know how true it is unless it's one of these fantasy tales he likes to tell, but Jock Kirk turned up and said he's going to write a ticket out for my dad because he's going to say that he pulled my dad up on his motorbike at this time, which takes him away from a shop that was burgled that he robbed. So he had backup and cover being in a different place to where the burglary happened. But basically, he robbed the shop, got my dad as backup, and he obviously he paid my dad. The policeman robbed the shop. Yeah, they went to the they went to the robbery. Yeah. Nobody there, emptied out what they could, then come to me dad and said, "Bill, stick up for me. I, I arrested you there. I didn't go nowhere near that shop." So he was nowhere near the shop. So he wasn't even in the shop. But he's, from what I understand, he's emptied the shop, stolen all the stuff. Asked my dad to be a witness for him that he was in a different location. And that was that Jock Kirk. So if this story is true, policeman Jock Kirk wore a uniform but was a criminal. Ever since I was told about Lambert's closeness to a policeman, I've been trying to find details of a policeman called Jock Kirk around the area of Sutton and Cheen. And I've finally found a newspaper cutting and I'm confident this is the same person. It reads, May 2012, child rapist, former police officer Peter Kirk, aged 78, jailed for 14 years for carrying out a string of depraved sexual assaults on a mother and her daughter, six child rapes and nine child sexual offences. Kirk worked as a police constable in Sutton and Cheen between 1958 and 1984, and then in clubs and vice. His sexual assaults were in the 1980s on a girl when she was between 10 and 12 years, and then, 25 years later, on the same woman's daughter, over a period of two years, between the ages of six and eight. These crimes only came to light by chance when the two victims, the mother and the daughter, were having a conversation about the vulnerability of children to sexual predators in chat rooms. So, given that both Lambert and Kirk were child sex offenders, committing offences around the same time, it is very clear why these two became friends. This information now makes me wonder if together they were committing offences at the shed. I've been told by a number of victims of Lambert that they felt someone else was also involved. Could this person have been paedophile policeman Jock Kirk? Perhaps this podcast will trigger other victims to come forward. I hope so, because I'm certain from working in this field for as long as I have that Kirk will have abused many other young girls. I've tried to find Kirk, but can't as of yet track him down. But I will keep trying. Steve has really opened up about his childhood, which I could see at times was very, very difficult for him. He has recounted an occasion when he was at the graveyard helping his dad burn something down beside and under a grave, something that he now feels was suspicious and that he believes is connected to Lee's murder. 
It was in the same location Lee vanished, and certainly it connects with the many reports and intelligence that Lambert killed Lee and then got rid of his body at or near the graveyard. As we know, Lambert was arrested in connection with Lee's disappearance and murder, but he's never been charged. I've been investigating this case now for over two years, and in the months prior to lockdown in 2020, I was determined to find Bill Lambert and put my allegations to him and get an account. Coming up in episode 4, the final concluding part. I meet with Lee's parents, Peter and Christine, and update them. Well, it's very, very strange that the only person to have ever claim to have seen Lee after he disappeared is one of the suspects. I go on the trail of Lambert to speak to him. So I know you can hear me, Mr. Lambert. I'm doing an invasion. Hey, okay, off. listen, listen. Talk to me, talk to me. So that's an angry man with a baseball bat. I tell Lee's parents exactly what I found as part of my investigation. If only the police had known that, then that, that maybe we would have found out what happened to Lee. And reveal a shocking account from a witness who went to the shed not long after Lee vanished. I saw a single mattress on its end up against a wall. The mattress was stained over about 70% of it with what I believe was blood. You've just heard episode 3, The Murder of Lee Boxall. Next week will be the final and concluding episode of this investigation. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen and subscribe to our channel. If you have any thoughts or just want to get in touch, then you can do so via our Twitter page at The Detective FM or go to our website www.thedetective.co.uk. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, produced and recorded by Mark Williams-Thomas, edited by Martin Kays, the music by Dylan Apega. The Detective is an original true crime podcast brought to you by Acast.